Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 18, and we're focusing on the 1670s through to the 1680s, where a whole lot was going on in the south of Africa. Let me first start with race relations. South Africans probably have no idea that the man who launched the most aggressive drive to expand Europeans into Africa was not born in Europe. He was born in Mauritius of Dutch and Indian stock. Had he been born after apartheid's firm grasp fixed South Africa in race-based laws after 1948, he would have been classified coloured. The man who ran the first version of our country would have been denied the right to vote and forced to take second-class trains had they existed. And yet he introduced colonialism in South Africa in its full stark reality. History, you've got to love it in all its irony. The man, of course, was Simon van der Stel, who was dark of skin and who was Eastern in his ways, as well as Dutch, of course, half and half. History is a vicious taskmaster of the bigot, the blind contemporary. Simon was to usher in the formation of a whole new people, the Afrikaners, part black, part white, part French, part Dutch, somewhat coy, a spattering of Angolan, layered with Madagascan, infused in Africa. The later Afrikaners would be English or Irish or Scots in origin, as well as Scandinavians. They are the trekboers of the 19th century and the poets of the 21st. But let's not get ahead of ourselves at this point. When Simon van der Stel arrived from Mauritius, the colony was still confined to the Cape Peninsula with outstations at Dassen Island, Saldana Bay and the Hottentots Hollands Mountains. 26 years later, when his son Adrian van der Stel was recalled, it covered many hundreds of square miles with the new towns of Stellenbosch and Rockenstein, the former with its own magistrate and council, and the latter populated by industrious French refugees known as the Huguenots. They arrived in 1688 and are part of our next podcast. Van der Stel Sr. was driven by a relentless energy and a talent for organizing. Within a month of his arrival in 1679, he was off surveying his command and had identified a site for a new town called Stellenbosch. He had laid out land holdings of 160 acres per plot, watered by the Esterafir, but he needed immigrants to populate the land. When he first sailed into Table Bay in 1679, he would have noted a few interesting things in the tiny settlements that adjoined the fort, now built of stone and an imposing building close to the seafront. There were now around 200 freemen, burghers, free burghers. Some were unsavory, such as P. Bartolome, a carpenter, who threatened to shoot the previous governor like a dog. There was J. Jans, a drunkard, who in an intoxicated state thought it would be interesting to see what happened if he fed pigs and dogs with sugar and eggs mixed with wine, then picked another drunk's pocket. For his trouble, he was flogged, given three years in chains, and all his property confiscated. He had turned into a convict. That meant technically he was of lower status than a slave. Below the rung of freemen, white and black, were the slaves, and they were all black. And yet, under Dutch law based on Roman practice, slaves had a recognized legal status which did not exist in English common law at the time, nor the common law of America. Once the freeman or woman was demoted and their freedom taken away, they could be branded and flogged and forced to work for the period of punishment in a series of what were called vile offices, those who cleaned the night pails, for example. They were the political prisoners who watched van der Stel's ship drop anchor in the bay. In all these gradations, there were none specifically for colour at the time. 
Indians, Chinese, Malays and black Africans could all live as free burghers alongside the Dutch. Everyone spoke Dutch as the lingua franca. Even the Khoi, such as Kotoa, had found their places amongst the respectable, but there was a strong correlation, of course, between colour and status. At the bottom, the convicts, who were a lower class than slaves, were any race. A cross-traffic of malefactors resulted in many white convicts being dispatched to serve their sentences in Mauritius or Batavia and the Chinese and Malays to the Cape. By 1672, the VOC had formally annexed the Cape Peninsula as justly won by the sword, a particularly direct colonial claim which usually also features a flag. To regularize the position, they went through the farce of buying the Cape Peninsula and the lands adjacent to false and Saldana Bays, nominally for £1,600, but actually really only paid £9, 12 shillings and 9 pence in goods. By the time the Fundestels arrived in 1679, the land deal pretty much had faded into obscurity. Unlike previous commanders who had been given the Cape as a pre-retirement gratification or as a step in the company career, the new governor van der Stel was also given the promotion of the rank of Councillor of India. He arrived with his six children, but not his wife. She refused to make the trip, so he was not only a coloured governor, he was also a single parent. Van der Stel was to found a South African dynasty, casting off his links to the motherland. And that's partly because he was born in Mauritius, not Holland. He was to run the Cape until 1699, by far the most extensive time spent by any governor since the Dutch landed in 1652. He was also a master of farming and horticulture in particular. He planted oak trees, saying they were the most likely to do well and provide dockyard supplies, and he did so in the thousands. Oaks still dominate Stellenbosch, and even Johannesburg, 1,000 miles away, only founded, of course, in the 1880s. The company gardens became horticultural treasure houses tended by famous botanists. He introduced wine-making techniques and soon had a vintage of his own, improved until the wine on his farm, Constantia, was actually recognized through Europe. We drink Constantia wines to this day. I have to say thanks, Simons van der Stel, and a toast to you. Under his governorship, the Cape went from being able to supply a limited number of ships to actually exporting agricultural goods. This was no small task, as we're going to hear. But he had a dark side too, which we'll hear about, and is particularly in his treatment uh, of his coy allies. By the last two decades of the 17th century, the VOC was experimenting with colonization in its eastern possessions, such as Java, and made a deliberate effort to transform its refreshment station in the Cape into a genuine colony. This period of assisted immigration and close settlement covered the governorships of the Fundestels, Father Simon and son Willem, and saw the arrival of the majority of the ancestors of the people of South Africa known as the Afrikaners. During Simon van der Stel's reign, the word came into being along with the people. Simon van der Stel had been educated in Amsterdam before he was sent to the east where he married his Indian wife. He was a dark, cheerful man of medium height and was 40 years old when he arrived in the Cape. Van der Stel was an ardent Dutch patriot and an expansionist by nature, and sent new settlers into the east of Valais and granted large areas of land to these free burghers. The use-it-or-lose-it principle remained. No planting and the land reverted to the company. The culture of tobacco was forbidden, and one-tenth of the grain not consumed by the growers had to be handed over to the VOC. All good and well. The problem he faced was there weren't enough good burghers to take up the land, as he proposed to extend the settlements along the Berg River Valley under the purple shadow of the mountains. He needed immigrants. 
Our colonists, he reported, consist chiefly of strong, gallant and industrious bachelors, although many were now chafing at the VOC's interference in their lives. The VOC hesitated once more, sending a letter back where they said they regretted that they saw little chance of sending out suitable settlers because people can at present earn a very good livelihood here. And by here they meant in Holland. Even girls from the orphanages of Holland refused to make the voyage to the Cape. Sending prisoners from the east to the Cape was also hardly an acceptable immigration policy with all due apologies to Australians, of course. Simon van der Stel was determined to attract immigrants to his Stellenbosch and Drakenstein settlements. By 1682, he had managed to set up a petty court of two officials and two burghers appointed annually to sit weekly and relieve the High Court by hearing minor civil suits arising from that district. He called the Cape. He also established a court of four Himraden at the newly founded town of Stellenbosch. These men were burghers, free men, but they were unpaid. Their powers were not well defined, and they heard petty civil cases like the Cape District Court. The development of the colonial administration based on law had begun. More than a thousand miles away to the north, another process, which had started hundreds of years before, was also to prove significant, and we need to return to this part of southern Africa for an update. From the 14th century, Shona and Sutu speakers were in close proximity in the Sotbansberg close to the Limpopo River. The Venda people were emerging from the Singo, an offshoot of the Shona. There's a lot of debate between archaeologists and traditionalists around this story, where Venda oral tradition speaks of the Singo capital Zata. The Singo traditions outlined a dispute with Shona Rosby rulers as the motivation for their departure from southwestern Zimbabwe into the Sotbansberg, but the Singo claims are at odds with the archaeological record. This is a case where the oral history has expanded time and erroneously pushed these epochs back. The vendor only arrived at Zata on the Inzalel River between 1680 and 1700, not a century earlier as oral history describes. Still, there's no denying that the people were the forebears of the vendor. The traditions that appeared in the archaeological record indicate that the Singo traditions overpowered the pre-Singo peoples through the 17th century. By the time Van Riebeek arrived at the Cape, their distinctive settlement patterns dominated the region of the Sotbansberg. We can track this from the ceramic record too, where the sequence shows that a constant intense interaction was taking place between Shona and Sotho speakers. These Shona incursions brought the Zimbabwe culture settlements to the Sotbansberg with its central cattle pattern, something we've heard about in earlier podcasts. Remember, the distinct household patterns are now clues for historians, and they develop chronologically and geographically like trails on a map. Lataba ceramics are stylistically stable, so the emergence of this style of pottery is a giveaway for timing as well. Vendor people still make that pottery today. What had happened in the century leading up to the late 1600s was that the Vendor and Sutu people had been intermarrying, but we also know that it was not a happy union at times. For example, the Singo oral tradition is peppered with less than positive comments about the pre-Singo peoples, the Ngorno communities, who were Sutu speaking. They are depicted as chiefless rabble and uncivilized. A bit like what the Dutch were saying about the Khoi, much further south at the same time. We also know that the Singo were deploying a classic first-comer status of a culture that's become dominant. Therefore, its oral tradition becomes dominant too. Losers never get to tell their stories. It's always the dominant culture that determines the narrative, whether it be true or false. But Venda totemic names, or Mitupo, have a hierarchy that relates to the political fortunes of Sutu chiefs who were subdued by the Singo, and these consequently preserve the chronology of events. The Singo Mutupo totems 
are composed mostly of mountain imagery and Songo chiefs are also buried on mountains. The pecking order is interesting to follow. The Singo chiefs of Mbetsi Palace in the northern Sotbansberg, for example, led the all-important rituals of fertility, securing their claims as owners of the land. The outer margins of vendor society were referred to as the dry ones, reviled by the upper classes. So the appearance of a consolidated vendor identity, which was pretty much in place by the 1670s and 1680s, is tied to the period of intense trade in copper, gold, ivory and other commodities such as salt. Fascinating too was the dominance of vendor mining. Copper mining for export to the eastern ports was centred in the local deposits at Messina, Palabora, Gravelot and Leidstorp. An offshoot of the vendor, the Lemba people, were in control of the mines of Messina, for example. The Singo state was established by the late 16th century and controlled this external trade with metal production at the very core of their power. Vendor trade had been ostensibly through Safala, which was northeast of where they lived, but a significant change was taking place between 1670 and 1700. Dutch records, along with the Portuguese and English, show that the metals from the vendor were now appearing more often at Delagoa Bay, modern Maputo of Mozambique. This is far south of Safala. The copper came from Palabora mines in the eastern Lowfeld, and the Messina mines on the Limpopo far to the north, and the tin from Roiberg, which was southwest. These networks were ancient, but would become more useful to the coming tide of ivory hunters from Europe in a hundred years. The balance of trading power amongst the Mapungubwe and Singo people moved southwards as the effect of the Dutch and British traders at Delagoa Bay increased. The networks that were being exploited were concentrated towards the interior Sututswana-speaking communities of the Lowfelt and the escarpment areas southwards, closer to Delagoa Bay. We also know that at the same time, the northeasterly power base of the Singo began to weaken, and by the last quarter of the 17th century, there were succession disputes, political fragmentation, and settlement location changes. The latter point in particular must be taken as a sudden need for more security because these settlements moved to defensive hilltop locations. This sort of defensive homestead remained the same from the late 17th century all the way through into the 19th. Meanwhile, along the east coast of South Africa, developments were taking place amongst the Nguni speakers as well. The last hundred years to 1650 had seen the Sutu and Swana also expanding their footprint across the Vaal River. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, this meant for the first time farmers were on the plains of the Free State. By the end of the 17th century, Sutu and Swana speakers had pushed up against the very southern limits of viable sorghum and millet agriculture marked by the 500mm edge of summer rainfall region. This was the first systematic exploitation of these grasslands by farmers, and we have to ask ourselves, why did they move into this area? We know that it was not demographic pressure, with population levels in the thousands, not the millions. It's also extremely cold in winter, with temperatures dropping below freezing. It's possible that climate change at the time encouraged this move. It was a period of warmer and wetter weather during the Little Ice Age, and of course, humans love exploring. African farmers had also shown themselves to be resilient and adaptable, and had grown sorghum and millet variants that could bear conditions where predictable rainfall was difficult, but of course there was a limit. We know this because when there was a sudden drier period that began in 1675, settlements on these free state plains did not show any signs of major disruption. They continued planting these two main crops, so there must have been some genetic modification going on. The second major technology trend that we've tracked in these regions is the increased use of dry stone walls 
as a replacement for poles and thatch boundaries. Anyone flying over parts of Gauteng province at low level or Mpumalanga and the Free State today can see these amazing remnants scattered in large numbers across the grasslands. The area is wood poor. Very few trees grew in these highlands and the innovation made sense. Historians have also noted that the use of stone walling was located even when there were forests because as settlements grew, the pressure on limited wood grew at the same time. And stone walls, thirdly, are just better than wood because it's a better place to house your family and your livestock. And we know that Van Riebeek knew this when he began a process of improving the famous fort in Cape Town, which was timber and earth, and after he left, it was converted to a fully stone five-cornered structure that tourists wander around today. These stone-walled homesteads of the hinterland, however, built by Tswana and Sutu people, were not all occupied all the time. They were used on a rotational basis. The owners of these homes were laying down their claim to the land by building fixed structures we still find today. If you have time, take a look at the aerial photographs of these stone settlements by searching on Google or your favorite search engine. They are impressive and in their thousands, starting from just one building extending to large villages of 20 or 30 homesteads enjoying sometimes more, all built of dry-walled stone in the Great Zimbabwe technique and some connected by stone-walled avenues kilometers long. It's so amazing that some conspiracy theorists believe these stone dwellings were deposited by alien civilizations or Egyptians. You know, folks, the wonders of human endeavors historically are jaw-dropping, but some people just don't believe that indigenous people are capable of hewing stone. It's like the Andes, where the Incas of Peru managed to work stone so finely that you cannot squeeze a piece of A4 paper between the layers. We can't do the cracking of stone the ancients could using their techniques these days. We've lost that skill and rely on machines. Because of this, race-based writers have concocted numerous fabrications about little green men pitching up to do the work. Madness, really. Insulting, too. No, my friends, the stone was cut by Africans who learned the trade as stonemasons passed on generation to generation. Thousands of years of artisanal practice produced these ancient dwellings. The truth is always more interesting than fiction. With that, it's time to end the podcast for this week. Next episode, we'll hear more about the Van of the Cape, as well as more news about the Nguni, Sutu and Swana speakers of the North, and of course the Huguenots from France. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It improves the visibility of the stories. You can also contact me through desmondlatham.blog where I'm trying to post pictures and stories, or for urgent communication, you can tweet me at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye.